Let's now bow our heads and pray for God to be at work among us through the preaching of his word. In Luke 24, two of Jesus' disciples say to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? We pray, Father, that their experience would be ours this morning. Would the scriptures be opened to us by the Spirit of Christ? And would our hearts burn within us? Amen. In the world, but not of the world. That's a Christian slogan you've probably come across at some point. In the world, but not of the world. It's a way of summarising our position as God's people. We're to play an active part in the world, contributing to its well-being in various ways. But we're not to be of the world. In other words, our, our values and behaviour should reflect heaven's standards instead of the world's standards. In the world, but not of the world. Sometimes popular Christian Slogans can be unhelpful, I can think of a few, but we can't really criticise that slogan, in the world, not of the world, because it basically comes from Jesus himself. In John 17, Jesus says of his disciples, I have sent them into the world. So that backs up the first half of the slogan, we're in the world, we've been sent into the midst of it. And in the same chapter, Jesus also says of his disciples, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it which backs up the second half of the slogan. Our values, our morals, our aims, our power. All of those things come from heaven, not from the world around us. Now, living in the world without being of the world is difficult. Living and working among non-Christian people, socialising with non-Christian people, while remaining faithful to heaven, calls for spiritual maturity. Christians who maintain that kind of faithful presence among non-Christians are rare in my experience. We tend to lean too much in one direction or the other. Either we're hardly in the world at all, or we're good at spending time among non-Christians, but our behavior just blends in with theirs even when it should be different. It is hard to live as a truly faithful presence among non-believers. That's why Christians who manage to do it are rare. But we can draw rich, inspiring encouragement from our Bible passage today. It tells the story of a terrifying invasion in the region where Lot, Abraham's nephew, has been living. Lot gets abducted by these enemy raiders. And Abraham's response to the invasion, along with his handling of the aftermath, Give us a 4,000-year-old model to follow. This Old Testament believer can help us live in the world without being of the world. We're going to break up the passage into three sections, verses 1 through 16, then verses 17 through 20, uh, through 20, and lastly verses 21 through 24. In each section, Abraham displays a different aspect of what it means to live as a faithful presence in this world. Let's get underway with verses 1 through 16. We'll give this section the heading Faithful in Action, 
faithful in action. If you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember that Lot chose to leave the promised land. He went to live in the Dead Sea region, an area that bordered the promised land of Canaan, but wasn't actually in Canaan. Lot's departure from Canaan meant he was exposed to the dangers of life in unpromised land. And in verses 1 through 16, we see just how dangerous that life could be. Verses 1 through 16 describe a war that took place at that time. And to understand this war rightly, we need to do just a little geography. Most of the action in the Bible takes place in what's known as the the, the Fertile Crescent, an enormous green semicircle of land going from the Mediterranean Sea in the west, so for you that's over here, your, your direction of looking. Here we have the west Mediterranean Sea and the Fertile Crescent goes up above the Arabian Desert and then down to the Persian Gulf in the east. I find it helpful to think of it as a a giant green croissant. Abraham's Canaan and Lot's Dead Sea region are right down in the western prong of the croissant. So one of those end pieces that you can eat in one bite. You, You think of those prongs at the end of a croissant. Well, pretty much the whole of the rest of this giant green croissant is an area known as Mesopotamia. And throughout the Old Testament, whoever controls Mesopotamia typically looks down at that tasty little prong of croissant next to the Mediterranean Sea and thinks to themselves, I will have that tasty morsel. Thank you very much. It's worth getting that geography into our heads because it helps us grasp just how scary the four kings in verse 1 are. Their kingdoms are all in or near Mesopotamia. We'll call them the Mesopotamian marauders. They're an immensely powerful alliance of invaders coming down towards the western prong of the croissant. Everything we're told about them in verses 1 through 12 speaks of their ferocious aggression and unstoppable power. Now in verse 4 we find out what triggers their invasion. It's a verse about the five kings of the Dead Sea region, we'll call them the Dead Sea doormats for reasons that will soon become clear. According to verse 4, for 12 years they've been serving King Kedorlaomer, I'll call him King C, it's just easier, leader of the Mesopotamian marauders. So the Dead Sea doormats have been serving King C for 12 years, which means year after year they've sent him a tribute of silver and gold or perhaps other valuable items such as livestock. But the Dead Sea Five have grown tired of being doormats serving King C, and so they stop sending tribute. Verse 4 says, 12 years they had served Kedorlaomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. Judging by the start of verse 5, it then takes a full year for King C to retaliate, which makes sense when you think about the immense distances involved. Now, the five Dead Sea kings would have received information from other parts of the Fertile Crescent. It would have reached them more slowly than it reaches us, but they would have known what was going on in other parts of the world. 
So the Dead Sea Five would have heard reports of the progress of the Mesopotamian marauders down from the north towards their own land. And those reports would have iced their spines. Verses 5, 6, and 7 set out what the Mesopotamian marauders did while on their way to the Dead Sea region. They had six major conquests before they even reached the Dead Sea kings. Imagine the five Dead Sea kings hearing about those conquests. Each news bulletin would have increased their trembling. At last the day comes when the Dead Sea doormats face their enemies, the Mesopotamian marauders. Verse 8 says the battle took place in the valley of Sidim, there at the end of verse 8, just south of the Dead Sea. And according to verse 10, that valley was full of bitumen pits, often known as tar pits. Throughout the valley, those bubbling pits would have filled the air with their smell, the same pungent smell you come across when workers are laying down fresh asphalt. If you visited the tar pits in California, you'll know that animals would get trapped in the tar. They couldn't pull themselves out of it and they'd be stuck there until they died from starvation or exhaustion or attack from predators. So that's the local scenery on the battlefield where the four Mesopotamian kings attack the five Dead Sea kings. All we're told about that battle is that the Dead Sea kings flee for their lives. And one thing you don't want to fall into when you're fleeing from a battle is a tar pit. Verse 10 says, Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some, meaning some of their forces, some of their soldiers, fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Imagine the horror of trying to escape as quickly as you can, only to discover that your feet are held fast by sticky black asphalt. The soldiers who fell into tar pits would have been immobilized, easy targets for enemy arrows. But some of the fleeing forces avoid falling into the tar pits and get away. And one of those soldiers who successfully gets away goes straight to Abraham in Canaan. This soldier knows that Abraham's nephew Lot has been carried off by the invaders who are now heading back up the croissant to Mesopotamia. And he thinks Abraham should be told about this. So this is where Abraham comes in. Abraham is the reason why this ancient conflict is recorded in the Bible. So it's worth asking why there's so much build-up before Abraham gets involved. He's not mentioned until verse 12 of chapter 14. All those other verses packed with names, people and places, they might seem rather unnecessary at first glance, but what those verses establish is the scale of the challenge facing Abraham. Thanks to those first 11, or so, 11 verses, we know what Abraham is taking on when he decides to pursue the Mesopotamians to rescue his nephew Lot. Those marauders from Mesopotamia were a battle-hardened force that had crushed every opponent. They seemed invincible. They must have vastly outnumbered the forces Abraham could muster, those 
318 men we're told about in verse 14 plus the fighters allied with Abraham uh, Mamre, Eshkol and Aner they would have brought some troops as well they're mentioned in verses 13 and 24 as allies of Abram even so Abraham's forces the forces of his allies would have been outnumbered surely by the Mesopotamian marauders and ancient readers of those first 11 verses would have been amazed by Abraham's decision to go after the Mesopotamians and we should be amazed too we're not told what Abraham's thought process was but it probably went something like this God has promised to bless those who bless me and curse those who curse me we saw those promises in Genesis chapter 12 and so Abraham's thought process would have continued the Mesopotamians have cursed me by capturing my own nephew Lot God's promise means God will be with me and he will be against the Mesopotamians who have cursed me if I do this if I take this action I will be I can be confident that God will grant me success so that's how Abraham's thought process would have gone something along those lines and I hope we all see how God's word his promise to Abraham gave him a basis for his faithful action we read about that action in verses 14 through 16 when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive he led forth his trained men born in his house 318 of them and went in pursuit as far as Dan a hundred miles to the north and he divided his forces against them by night he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobar north of Damascus another 60 miles north then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people Genesis 14 may seem so different from our lives today in New York City but it's really not because like Abraham we will face situations where we need to act on the basis of God's Word there will be times when we need to roll up our sleeves and do bold things spurred on by God's promises to us in his word when that happens it may feel uncomfortable taking action can feel uncomfortable I'm sure there was a part of Abraham that felt extremely uncomfortable as he headed north with his forces to take on the Mesopotamians one feature of modern life is a widespread phobia of commitment we are so eager to keep our options open that we shy away from any course of action that will close down the options we want to keep open to take action like Abraham takes action means pushing alternatives to one side to get something done that really counts in God's sight I wonder whether you're conscious of something that you should be doing in line with God's word his promises an action you should be 
taking? Could it be time for you to take that bold action, just as Abraham takes bold action here in Genesis 14? Part of what it means to live in the world is to do things here while we wait for Jesus to return. We're not to wait for him to return passively. Cloistered Christianity is really the least biblical expression of Christianity that there is. Abraham's willingness to take faithful action, despite the overwhelming nature of the challenge facing him, shows us what God's people are capable of with God's help. Abraham gathered troops, made alliances, traveled a hundred miles north, attacked extremely intimidating opponents, and then chased them back toward their homeland. And Abraham, according to the New Testament, is the father of all who believe. We can do things in faith, just as our father in the faith did himself. And one way to bring this Bible passage into your life would be to meditate on it. When you face a challenging action that seems overwhelmingly difficult, but you believe it is what God wants you to do, Tell yourself, Abraham took on the Mesopotamians. I can take on this because Abraham's God is also my God. We've seen that Abraham is faithful in action. He's also faithful in worship. And through his faithfulness in worship, which we're about to look at, he marks himself out as not of this world. He's in the world. Yes, we've just seen that. But he's not of the world. When Abraham returns from defeating the Mesopotamian marauders, he's met by a priest king named Melchizedek. Please look down with me to verses 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He was priest of God Most High. That's what verse 18 says about Melchizedek. In the Bible, priests are go-betweens who help human beings connect with the one true God. By treating Melchizedek as the priest he is, Abraham is faithful in worship. He worships God by honoring Melchizedek as God's appointed priest. And one of the ways in which Abraham honors Melchizedek is by giving him a tenth of all the plunder he's taken from the Mesopotamians. That word tenth there at the end of verse 20, is the same word that's usually translated tithe elsewhere in the Old Testament. And this is the first example in the Bible of someone tithing, that is, giving a tenth of their earnings or takings in service of God for his service. Tithing is such a fitting response from Abraham to what Melchizedek says in verses 19 and 20. Melchizedek calls God the possessor of heaven and earth. In verse 19, if the God, of a, if the God who Abraham worships possesses heaven and earth, then Abraham can give him a tenth 
without any sense of loss. Because the God he worships possesses all things. So he can give him a tenth of this plunder without any loss. And in verse 20, Melchizedek says, Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He attributes Abraham's victory entirely to God. That's Melchizedek's verdict. It was God's power that stood behind Abraham's victory. And Abraham shows that he agrees with that verdict through this tithe. He gives glory to God by giving him a tenth of the plunder. God's people reveal their allegiance to him through their faithfulness in worship, as we see Abraham being faithful in worship here. Worship marks God's people out as citizens of heaven, people who belong to another world. There is something otherworldly about worship, and that is true of Abraham's time with Melchizedek. There's something out of this world about it. Melchizedek has no earthly right to share in the plunder. He receives it only because he represents heaven. That's why he gets the tenth. And we're told in verse 17 that Melchizedek and Abraham meet in a valley, the valley of Shaveh. The last valley mentioned in this passage was that Tarpet Valley, the Valley of Sidim, and that valley left us with the mental image of men stuck to earth, those soldiers who fell into the Tarpets. But here in the Valley of Shaveh, the King's Valley, instead of being stuck to earth, Abraham connects with heaven through Melchizedek, the priest. Three times in verses 18, 19, and 20, God is described as God most high, out of this world, the God above all things. By worshipping that God, Abraham and Melchizedek are looking beyond this world, with its soldiers dying in tar pits, to a God who dwells outside. Through his faithfulness in worship, Abraham helps establish Melchizedek's place in salvation history. The New Testament treats Melchizedek as a forerunner of Jesus Christ, someone who paved the way for Jesus. He prepared the way for him by having so much in common with Jesus. As we heard in our first Bible reading from Hebrews 7, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness and king of Salem, the city he was king of, means king of peace. He's a priest king known for righteousness and peace. Remind you of anyone? Melchizedek's presence in the Bible creates a kind of Cinderella shoe that doesn't fit anyone else until Jesus comes. These verses about Melchizedek are meant to fill readers with longing for another priest king like him, a longing that will only be satisfied when Jesus arrives. So Melchizedek has a vitally important place in salvation history, and Abraham plays his part in putting Melchizedek on the map simply by faithfully worshipping God. In Abraham's period of salvation history, faithfulness in worship meant honouring God's priest, Melchizedek. And it's very similar in our own period of salvation history. We also need to honour God's appointed priest, in our case that's Jesus, 
the priest king who gives righteousness and peace to everyone who comes to him. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him, that is Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became sin for us when he died on the cross, paying the penalty for other people's sin. Those who join themselves to him, the risen Christ, through faith, receive his righteousness and peace. Peace with him, with God the Father, through God the Holy Spirit. As Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We need him. He's the priest king who meets our need. And so it's right for us to honor him through our worship. And we do that when we gather as his people in his name, just as we've done today here at the Triad. Abraham showed that he was not of this world when he honored God's priest, Melchizedek. And when we honor Jesus by gathering in his name with his people, we also show that we don't belong to this world. Instead, we're citizens of heaven. Our true allegiance is to heaven. Abraham was faithful in action, faithful in worship. And in the last part of the passage, more briefly, we see him being faithful in separation. Faithful in separation. Melchizedek isn't the only king who comes out to greet Abraham when he returns from his battle against the Mesopotamians. The king of Sodom also goes out to Abraham. Suddenly, the atmosphere changes. Let's look down, please, to verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Through his stern refusal to accept anything that might belong to the king of Sodom. Abraham distances himself from the king of Sodom. If the king of Sodom had any kind of reason at all for saying that he had made Abraham rich, then Abraham would have been associated with that king of Sodom in the minds of everyone in that region. And Abraham doesn't want his name, his reputation, to be tarnished by association with the king of Sodom. It might help us understand what Abraham's doing here if we think of the king of Sodom as a kind of mob boss, a local mafia kingpin. In the previous chapter of Genesis, we were told that the people of Sodom were great sinners against the Lord. The leader of those people in other words, the, the king Abraham is dealing with, this king of Sodom, would bear most responsibility for the wickedness of his people. He's letting it carry on unpunished. He's like a, a mafia boss leading a, a, an evil empire, an evil mini-empire. 
And Abraham doesn't want there to be any suggestion that he is somehow on the payroll of that local mob boss. Abraham would have been well within his rights to keep the plunder according to the customs of that time. And there's nothing evil about the plunder itself, or else Abraham wouldn't have given a tenth of it to God's priest Melchizedek. The problem is with the person the plunder is associated with, this king of Sodom. And Abraham goes out of his way to morally distance himself from that king, the king of Sodom. You might be wondering whether it's right for Abraham to be so standoffish, to morally distance himself in this way. After all, wasn't Jesus the friend of sinners? Shouldn't we pray for our enemies? Well, Jesus was the friend of sinners in that he came to save sinners and welcomed those who were open to the gospel, open to hearing from him, who recognized that they were sinners and were on their way to putting their faith in him. But Jesus didn't let his name, his reputation, get tied up and associated with people who were actively pursuing wickedness with no desire to repent. If you read through the passages where Jesus associates with people known as sinners, that's what you'll see. It couldn't have been said of Jesus that he materially benefited from people who were actively pursuing wickedness with no desire to repent. So how should we apply this faithfulness in separation to ourselves? Well, it seems to me there may be occasions when we realize we're in danger of being caught up in someone else's scheme which is clearly wicked, clearly designed to harm people. And under God, with his help, his leading, we may decide that the only course of action for us is to separate us from that evil scheme and from the person who is pursuing it. That's something to be done with prayer. It's hard to do. It is hard to live in the world, but not of the world. I think our tendency is to evade the hardness by being nice to everyone. But there are occasions when we need to separate ourselves from evil doing, and that act of separating can be, can be difficult and hard, but needs to be done or else our name and the name of Jesus Christ, whom we represent, will get caught up in that wickedness. We won't be able to speak out against that wickedness and say that it's wrong if we are benefiting from it in some way. So an employee caught up in a business that he realizes is pursuing something very wrong may well want to distance himself or herself by leaving that place of work and there by allowing himself or herself to speak out against it. That might be a way to apply this faithfulness in separation. Our values are heaven's values, not the world's values. And sometimes that will lead us to need to separate from the world, as Abraham does here. 
faithfulness in action, faithfulness in worship, faithfulness in separation. Let's pray for God's help that we might be faithful in these ways. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Abraham. We have seen already from Genesis that he was imperfect, a sinner like us, in need of your grace. But we also see in his life story how to live both in the world without being of the world. And we pray that you would help us follow his example in these ways. By your Spirit's strength, would we be faithful in action? Show us when you want us to act. Give us the strength to go through with those actions in this world. Help us to be faithful in worship, expressing our allegiance to you, our citizenship of heaven. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would also be faithful in separation. Show us when that is necessary. Help us to do it. For Jesus' sake, amen.